one of those statements, one of those ideas that comes right out of the Bible that just resonates with us. And once we've heard it, it seems like it's one of those things we can never unhear. And of course, that's a good thing. I'm referring to the statement that Joseph made to his brothers. You meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. Well, I'm Pastor Rick Stevens, and you're listening to Faith Is, the program where we challenge each other, stretch each other, to have absolute confidence in the trustworthiness of God. You know, God has called us to follow Him. It's not a really complicated situation. It just means we do what He did and practice what He says to practice, avoid what He says avoid. We pattern our lives after what the Bible says is the way to live. Because God has given us the pattern for living, how to have the best life now and the best life forever. And by the way, just in case you're confused by this, and it's, how should I say, it's easy to be confused or distracted, or perhaps, I should put it this way, we in the church have put the wrong emphasis on things for a long time. It still goes on today. Our whole focus has been, we want everybody to go to heaven. We want everybody to go to heaven, as if there's some formula that if we just get everybody to follow that formula, they're in, they're going to heaven. Well, that's good. I, I hope you'll be there too. I want everybody to live forever with the Lord. That's that's going to be the land we've all had aspiration to live out in this life. But one day it'll be a reality, and, and that's good, and I want you to live there. But the key to that is not so much looking beyond today as much as it's following Jesus in the here and now and recognizing that that's how we live now and then. So that it's a continuous kind of idea. It's not such a big change. Well, it'll be a big change because God's going to deal decisively with evil. That is significant, full stop, okay? But our life will go on because we've been patterning our lives after Jesus. So when the Bible says, do this, it means do this. I've heard people say, and, and I don't want to use a specific example because I don't want to point somebody out unnecessarily, okay? But I've heard people say, well, I can't go to church because. And then they'll fill in some reason. And I hear them say that, and I understand what they're saying. I don't doubt that they have thought about things, but I don't think they're thinking about things correctly. See, being a follower of Jesus means we agree to live lives according to the pattern he established. And so if I have a conflict or some circumstance or something that keeps me from being part of a local church, then my problem is my life is not oriented to the pattern of Jesus. And so I need to make first things first. And that's just one example. And I bring that up because I hope you are a part of a local church. It's just not the same without it. Now, I know I've heard stories. I've experienced it. Believe me, you don't want to hear what I've experienced with local churches. No, you do not want to know. And I'm not going to tell you because I don't want to give you any more excuse to think, well, church is too much trouble. Life is painful. Getting along with people is challenging. All of that is true in churches. But it's also true that when I've seen over and over as a pastor, people come up against a difficult life experience, and there are difficult life experiences. 
tragedies of one kind or another, the loss of a loved one, all of those things, I have noticed that the people that manage those best are the people that had the most connection, the deepest connection, the longest formed connection to a local church. And I really want to encourage you to seek and find a church that's faithful to the Bible. It's not necessarily the church that's closest to you. I just read this morning about a guy who he and his wife attend church about 15 miles from their house, and he seems to think that's a long way to go. Well, I understand what he's saying there. And yeah, it's longer than most people go when they drive to church. But he does it for a reason, because that's the church that he believes God has given him and his wife. So I want to encourage you, don't be alarmed if God asks you to drive a little ways to a church because it's faithful, because they seek the truth, because they follow the Bible, because the pastor preaches from and teaches from the Bible. That's the kind of church you need. I've observed in my lifetime, I remember one place I lived, that it wasn't that unusual for men to drive an hour each way to work. They did that five days a week. Going an hour, coming home an hour. That's a lot. I've never had to do that. Can't imagine having to do that. But they chose to do that for various reasons. That's fine. We respect their reasons. But isn't it interesting that some people will choose to travel that far to work, that long of a commute. But when it comes to attending a church that is faithful to the Bible, and if it requires them to spend a little more time in the car than they think they ought to spend, after all, it's the weekend. I know, I hear all the things people are starting to say. They get real ouchy about it, real touchy about it. You know, folks, we need to get over some of this stuff. If we're willing to do one thing for work or for recreation, then why can't we do something for God, for our souls? Because our souls matter. And the point is, not the distance. You don't have to... Put yourself through a long-distance drive if that's not necessary. That's not what I'm saying. But what I'm saying is, are we willing to follow Jesus and order our life around that? When people drive a long way to work, they order their life around that drive. When we commit to being part of a local church, we order our lives around that commitment. That's what I'm talking about. So, I haven't said it for a while, maybe, or maybe I say it too much. I don't think I can say it too much. I'm not going to be dissuaded from that. I want to encourage you to get involved in a church. Your church needs you, and you need your church. Make sure it's faithful to the Bible. Make sure the pastor is committed to telling you the truth, whether you want to hear it or not. Make sure the people in that church are willing, able, and even encourage the pastor to tell them the truth, even if they don't want to hear it, or even if he knows or she knows they'll be unhappy hearing what God has to say. All right. So, Back to that statement. You meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. Well, we've been following the life of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And we followed Jacob most recently into a reconciliation with his brother and back to the land where he had grown up to rejoin his father and his family. He had a family of his own, and from Jacob came 12 sons who became the 12 tribes of Israel. One of them was Joseph. Joseph was specially chosen by God. It was clear from the dreams he had to do some special things. Well, his brother didn't like Joseph. They resented him for a number of reasons, including that his father treated him better than the rest of them. And parents tread on terribly, terribly 
terribly dangerous ground when we favor a child over another. And the brothers were pretty upset with him, so they determined they were going to kill him. Instead of killing him, they threw him in a pit so they could later sell him off to, as, as a slave. He was taken to Egypt where he was sold into slavery. He served in Potiphar's house. He later went to the palace after he helped the, the pharaoh, the king, with some dreams. And he became second in charge of all of Egypt. Famine hit the land, which was all part of the story. You can go back and read all of that. And his brothers came looking for food, and he recognized them, but they didn't recognize him. He put them through a lot of hoops. And I want to encourage you to read the story of all the things he put them through. But ultimately... He reconciled with his brothers. They were afraid that he might take revenge. Understandably so. I mean, you'd tried to kill him, sold him into slavery. You'd be afraid too. But Joseph assured them that that wasn't the case. And he assured them that God had sent him ahead to save lives. And so the story unfolds. They bring the whole household down to Egypt. The brothers go back to the to their father, Jacob, and, and he brings the whole household, the whole clan, the, the large extended family to live in Egypt. Interesting how Pharaoh welcomes them, gives them a certain spot in Egypt. Glad they're there, but he keeps them separate from the Egyptians. The Egyptians didn't care much for people who herded livestock, which is what they were. They were shepherds. And so they kept them in a special place. And and yet they were welcomed into Egypt because of Joseph. All went well. Time passed. Jacob died. Joseph and his brothers gathered around. And now the brothers had a whole different level of fear. Because they wondered if Joseph had treated them nicely just because their father was still alive. Well, that's where this verse comes from, and I want to read it, and it's not exactly the same in this English translation. You understand that. You'll find it said a little differently in different English translations, but the essential idea is exactly what I said. So Joseph's brothers were concerned, and they were nervous about how Joseph would teach, would, would treat them now that their father wasn't there to kind of um, mediate and moderate things, and and so they speak to Joseph and, and try to, you know, try to sort out what's going to happen. And finally, Joseph said to them, Genesis chapter 50, near the end of the chapter, actually, verse 19. And I'm reading from the New Revised Standard Version, Update Edition. Joseph said, Do not be afraid. Am I in the place of God? Even though you intended to do harm to me, God intended it for good in order to preserve a numerous people as he is doing today. So have no fear. I myself will provide for you and your little ones. So here's Joseph saying to them again, like he said when they were first reconciled, first reacquainted, first started over, shall we say, he assured them that God had in mind good things and sent him ahead to save lives. And here he talks about many lives, numerous people. And indeed, the lives of his whole extended family were saved. But so were people from Egypt and, and all who traveled to Egypt looking for food had their lives saved because Joseph had gone before and had endured the difficulties, had trusted God, and looked at all the things that happened 
as somehow God unfolding his plan, unfolding what Joseph needed to do as part of the story of preserving the lives of God's people. That was important because the lives of those people were an answer to the promise God had given Abraham. Now, remember, we started on this recent adventure talking about Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So we'd understand who they are and what, what we mean when we say the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Well, we're talking about the one God, Yahweh, the God that begins to be revealed in the pages of what we call the Old Testament, finds more complete revelation in the life of Jesus when he was born, how he lived, his death, burial, and resurrection. That story is all part of God's promise to his people. And to Abraham, when they first entered into covenant, God said, I will make of you a great nation. You will have a son of your own. Now, at that time, Abraham was 75. He and his wife were well past the age where they would normally have children. But God said, it's going to happen. And time passed, and more time passed, and more time passed. And finally, 25 years later, they had a son, much to their surprise. So now it was Abraham and his son Isaac. And so Isaac became the son of promise, the son that God had promised. And Isaac grew up, his life was preserved, and he got married, and he had his own children. So Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Jacob was his son, well, one of the twins, because it was Jacob and Esau. And so there were two boys born at the same time to Jacob's wife, or Isaac's wife, Rebekah. And those boys had a little bit of an uneasy getting along, you could say. And uh, Jacob wasn't real nice to his brother, cheated him, tricked him, fled for his life, came back. They were reconciled. And now we're following the story of Jacob's clan because Jacob became the one through whom God was going to answer the promise of many people. So many people that you couldn't count them. More than the stars, more than the sand. So many people. And those sons grew up. Joseph became one. He went to Egypt, saved all the people's lives. And now he and his brothers are left because their father has died. And So that's when the brothers are concerned, and that's when he says, don't be afraid. Well, that came at the end of Genesis, and just a short verse later, we find that Joseph is now dying, and he dies. And so then we turn the page into the book of Exodus. Our Bible starts with Genesis, and then the next book in the anthology is Exodus. At the beginning of the book of Exodus, there are some verses that give us a genealogy. I'm going to skip over them to continue the story. And I want to begin with Exodus chapter 1, verse 8, still using that New Revised Standard Version updated edition. Now a new king arose over Egypt who did not know Joseph. Well, this is the context, so we're now setting the stage for the unfolding story. All of God's people, all of the Israelites, remember Jacob's name was changed to become Israel. They all live now in Egypt. And now there's a new ruler in Egypt who doesn't know Joseph. Now, 
they were well treated because of Joseph. They got along well because of what Joseph had done, what God had helped Joseph do. But now suddenly the power in Egypt has changed and doesn't know Joseph. Now, we don't know exactly what this means. We don't know exactly what changed, whether it was simply Joseph's memory had faded. It was many years, more than 400 years by this time. Whether it's people had just forgotten the significance of what Joseph did. People tend to have a short memory. You probably noticed that today. It could be nothing more than the fact that when a new ruler came into the throne, he changed his perspective on things. The old guy thought one thing, but he's going to think something different. And so maybe, maybe he hadn't totally forgotten Joseph, but maybe he didn't count it as that important. It's also possible there was another group of people that were also Semitic people. Uh, the Israelites were Semitic people. There were other people that lived there that were also Semitic, and they may have been involved in ruling Egypt in some fashion or another. Again, we don't know how to connect all this together. We know some things, but we haven't learned enough to know everything. That was a long time ago. And so it's possible that the new ruler, the new king, the new pharaoh, had somehow gained power following the rule of this other group of Semitic people, not not the Hebrews, not the Israelites. And maybe because the Israelites and this other group were all Semitic people from a similar region of the world, maybe he confused them and thought they were aligned with the other people or allied with them. Again, we don't know for sure, but we do know that suddenly everything changed because this new ruler, as it says in the verse we read, did not know Joseph. So let's continue with verse 9. He, and this is the new king, the new Pharaoh, he said to his people, Look, the Israelite people are more numerous and more powerful than we. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, or they will increase, and in the event of war, join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Well, this is not new to us. Maybe a new concept then, but not new to us of people being jealous of the well-being of God's people. It happened recently under the Nazi regime. It's happened in other settings where for one reason or another, people become jealous of how well Jewish people have done, how well God's people have done. Now, I don't know that I can explain all of the reasons for that, But it is true that many times Jewish people have done very well wherever they've lived. And one commentator, one writer, one Jewish writer, says there may be a few reasons for that. And so we need to at least touch on that so we understand. Now, I don't know if this was true in Egypt. Don't misunderstand that. But we do know that this is pretty much true in history that we're much more familiar with. So, for example... Jewish people are known to have strong, stable family lives. They would marry and have children. And so their families were strong, stable. They were pillars of the community in that sense. And they had a good, strong, stable family life and community life. Amongst Jewish people, there was near universal literacy. Both men and women could read. So they had a skill that was very much necessary and became more necessary as life became what we call more modern. 
So strong, stable family life near universal literacy. They also traditionally, Jewish people have had an emphasis on what we might call the life of the mind. They valued learning. And so they would apply themselves to learn things and to pursue professions that required them to learn things and consequently paid them better. And so we we see how they began to, to emphasize this so that their families could prosper and get along very well and do well in the context of the world in which they lived. They also demonstrated, kind of parallel to this idea of the emphasis on the life of the mind and on education and learning, they, they were characterized by delayed gratification. In other words, they expected their children to stay in school and equip themselves for life, not to hurry up and get married and to not get an education. They wanted them to be well prepared so that they could be good citizens, good members of the community, contribute to the society, and provide for themselves very well. And lastly, amongst the Jewish people, there has always been an aversion to violence. They have not been given to violence. Even today, what goes on in the Middle East by the nation of Israel is largely defensive because they are concerned that people might attack them. They don't take offensive action against their neighbors unless it's to prevent continued attack and they have to respond in a defensive way. And so you you take steps to stop the attacks on their people. So in this case, we don't know exactly what happened to cause them to thrive, except for one thing. Now, it could be that some of these values were beginning to to take root in the Jewish community of that day, the Israelites. But we do know one thing. You remember what that one thing is? Yeah, you might remember it. Remember, God promised Abraham that he would have many descendants. And so when it says here in Exodus chapter 1, that the people became more numerous and by this king's evaluation more powerful, we shouldn't be surprised because God had promised that there would be many descendants from Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and then the 12 tribes. So back to the scripture that we were reading, verse 1, sorry, chapter 1, verse 10, Pharaoh continues, Come, Let us deal shrewdly with them, or they will increase, and in the event of war, join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. So, Pharaoh recognizes them as a threat, and maybe because he had to persuade some people, maybe there were political, how should I say, challenges that he had to overcome, he suggests that they deal shrewdly with them, and he frames it as though they might become a threat in the event of war because they might join the enemies or they might leave and they would not benefit from the contribution the Jewish people were making to Egyptian society. So they hatch a plan. Well, actually it's a three-part plan as it turns out. Uh, One part didn't work out so well and the next one didn't work out. Well, actually none of them worked out, but that didn't keep them from trying. They tried in three different ways to stop the Israelites from thriving. So he says, let's deal shrewdly with them. And um, his first step is this. 
They set taskmasters over them, verse 11, to oppress them with forced labor. They built supply cities, Pithom, Ramses for Pharaoh. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and spread. So that the Egyptians came to dread the Israelites. The Egyptians subjected these Israelites to hard servitude and made their lives bitter with hard servitude in mortar and bricks and in every kind of field labor. They were ruthless in all the tasks that they imposed on them. So this is the beginning of what we see as them enslaving God's people. And they mention a variety of tasks. One of them was the bricks and mortar. And we know historically that forming, producing the millions of bricks that were required for the very, very aggressive building programs that were going on. Making those bricks was dirty, difficult labor. And yet that's what they set them to do. But did you notice in the text, in spite of the forced labor, in spite of the enslavement, and in spite of them doubling down on it, it says that the people continued to thrive. Did, did you catch that? It, it should not be overlooked. It absolutely should not. Verse 12, the more they were oppressed, meaning God's people, the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and spread so that the Egyptians came to dread the Israelites. Now, there's nothing in the text to give us a reason why they would dread them, except that they had decided that they were a threat. Nothing tells us that they were a threat. They just decided that they were. But in spite of all of that, in spite of their efforts to oppress them, God blessed them and they continued to thrive and the Egyptians could not stop that. So plan A, if you will, didn't work out so well for Pharaoh. Putting them to work didn't stop them from thriving. So he came up with another plan. And let's read a little further here. We'll see what he does next. Verse 15. The king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shipra and the other Pua, when you act as midwives to the Hebrew women and set them on the birth stool, if it is a son, kill him, but if it is a daughter, she shall live. Okay, so Pharaoh's next idea was, well, we haven't been able to work them into the ground. They keep doing better all the time. Plan A is not working, so he's thinking cleverly, and maybe he, maybe he took this next step because he could do it behind the scenes. Uh, I don't know. That doesn't say that. But he does clearly give instructions to the Hebrew midwives that they are supposed to kill every boy baby. When you act as midwives to the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stool, if it is a son, kill him. But if it is a daughter, you shall live. Now, the obvious strategy behind that is to reduce the male population. The men of fighting age would eventually be killed out. Of course, their labor supply would have been lost, but they were concerned. They were afraid of those people, and so they set out to kill them. What happens next is equally interesting. But the midwives feared God. Oh, what a statement that is. Way to go, ladies. The midwives feared God. They did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but they let the boys live. Can you hear what's going on here? They feared God. 
and they wouldn't kill the babies. How many people out there today, how many of us, fear God so much that we refuse to violate a commandment that God has given us? How many of us fear God more than we fear any other authority around? Now, keep in mind, Pharaoh was a more powerful government official than our government officials in this country. The people in those days had no rights. We have a Bill of Rights. The people in those days had no say in their government. We are fond of saying, and we need to recapture it better. That's a little bit of a different story. But we are fond of saying that that we have a government that's designed to function by the consent of the governed. Well, there was no such idea in Egypt. It was what the Pharaoh said, and that was that, and you better knuckle down and you better do it under threat of, well, death. Pharaoh, at his word, could have you killed. But the midwives, get what is said here. They feared God. How many of us live our lives in the fear of God more than in the fear of some other authority out there? Do you fear the government more than you fear God? Have you acted out of fear of the government in your life more than out of fear of God? Now, I think we're fortunate in this country that we don't often have problems with that. We don't often find ourselves having to make a choice between one authority or another because, as I said, we live in a great republic and we have set up our government to be by the consent of the governed, or as Abraham Lincoln said, of the people, by the people, and for the people. So we're fortunate. We haven't had a lot of that, but occasionally we do. And occasionally we have to stand up. And the question then becomes, do we fear God more than the governing authorities? Well, we want to talk about that and some other things because there are some really interesting moral dilemmas that come out of this story, and we're going to tackle them. And I'm going to challenge you to think through them and to come to some conclusions. You don't have to come to the same conclusion I do, but I want you to think about that because we have to fear God more than anything else. I'm Pastor Rick. Cofix RX Nasal Solution has completed the circle and is now offering throat spray with povidone iodine. That completes the protocol doctors like Peter McCullough recommend. If staying healthy is important, you'll want to make sure to add throat spray to your next order of Cofix RX. For a limited time and exclusive for America Out Loud listeners only, you can save 25% off your entire order. Let's double down against colds, flu, strep, RSV, HRV, COVID, and more. Click the banner or go to America Out Loud shop to get 25% off your entire order. Use coupon code OUTLOUD25. That's coupon code OUTLOUD25. World-class care from doctors you can trust, all from the comfort of your home. That is One Wellness. Dr. Peter McCullough and his team at The Wellness Company designed the One Wellness membership to provide free monthly supplements and unlimited telemedicine access with doctors that share your values. Go to OutLoudCare.com today and use code OUTLOUD for 25% off your first month of One Wellness. For 25 years, Global Healing has proudly produced the highest quality supplements and cleansing programs that are rooted in nature and backed by science. Get 15% off all of our products using code OUTLOUD. Global healing, giving you the power to take control of your health naturally. Oral hygiene hasn't changed in 50 years, but our diet and the way we eat has, creating an environment in your mouth for bacteria to wreak havoc on your teeth and gums. For better oral health, get Spry Dental Defense. 
an oral care line designed to combat acid-creating bacteria. The toothpaste, mouthwash, mints, and gum all contain xylitol, a natural ingredient shown to dramatically improve oral health. Spry can be found online and at all fine natural retailers. Trouble concentrating or recalling information is frustrating, embarrassing, and kills productivity. Nutrition company Healthy Cell created Focus and Recall to boost your brain power. Unlike other supplements that don't work, Focus and Recall is not a pill. It's a gel you swallow with ultra-absorption of science-backed ingredients to help you immediately sharpen focus, concentrate longer, and strengthen recall. Go to HealthyCell.com and use code OUTLOUD for 25% off your first order. Risk-free, love it, or your money back. Guaranteed. HealthyCell.com. Code out loud. We are the pulse and voice of everyday American thought. AmericaOutloud.news. Delivering a message of truth, inspiration, and hope to the world. Here we take on the challenges of our generation so that we can preserve future generations. Join us in the fight for liberty and justice for all. America Out Loud Talk Radio. Welcome back. I'm Pastor Rick Stevens, and I'm the host of Faith Is, where we stretch toward God and we challenge each other to have absolute confidence in the trustworthiness of God. I'm also the pastor of Diplomat Wesleyan Church in Cape Coral, Florida. Not sure if I've said that often enough, but I want you to know we have a great church here. We have people who are eager for me to tell them the truth as God explains it to me. It's a big responsibility. It's what God has given me. We have people who want to know what the Bible says and then are committed to living out their lives of faithfulness. And so we understand, maybe in a way some other churches don't, the challenge these Hebrew midwives faced when Pharaoh said, kill the boy babies, and they didn't. They feared God more. You see, we want to have that same attitude. We want to fear God more than the government. Now, we've faced some of this in recent years over the virus and the fear that went involved in that. There's a few lessons I think we can take away from that. One is, God says to us over and over, don't be afraid. Now, a lot of us didn't know what was going to happen when that hit. You can remember that. But a lot of us should have learned a lesson that we shouldn't let fear drive our decision making. And so we try to implement that now and not be afraid. These midwives were not afraid of Pharaoh. They were afraid of God. They feared God, and so they were faithful to God first. That's the kind of lives we want to live, and that was a good lesson for us, and we should grow from that. Yeah, we may have made some mistakes, but we're not going to make the same ones again. We're going to be courageous. We're going to stand up, and we're going to fear God more than any other authority out there. Well, our church never closed during that. We were fortunate because we didn't live in a state where they were oppressive. Our local government was not so oppressive as some have been. And so we didn't face the threat that some others did. So it didn't appear to us to be a great risk at the time. So I'm not putting ourselves out, out there as, as some great bastions of courage. I mean, we did the best we could, and we're glad we did. Some people in California and Illinois and New York, I mean, they faced much more intense pressure and they stood up to it and they are, they are our heroes. 
we had a local government official that spoke out quite candidly and boldly and almost with a threat, although I don't think it was exactly a threat, but saying that the pastors needed to listen to him because he was a government official and we needed to do what he said. Now, he's not particularly a bad guy. That was a terrible thing to say, and he was wrong. I'm personally acquainted with him, and I'm not his enemy. But I do watch what he says now much more carefully. But we need to ask ourselves going forward, and we can learn from the past, and that's good, but we need to ask ourselves going forward, are we going to be afraid of God more than a threat from a governing authority? Well, the midwives were, and so they let the boys live. Good for them. Well, verse 17 says they let them live. Verse 18, the king, hmm, he wants to know what's going on. So the king of Egypt summoned the midwives and said to them, why have you done this and allowed the boys to live? The midwives said to Pharaoh, because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwife comes to them. <laughs> Wait a minute. you got to be kidding me. Did you hear what they said? They're giving that Pharaoh quite the explanation, aren't they? Now, could some of it be true? Maybe. Could they have stretched the truth? Well, that's kind of the implication when you read the context. And we'll get into a little bit more of that as we go forward. But, you know, it's, it's worth a, a look, more than just a little look, to say, hmm, did these midwives lie to the king? And how do we, how do we square that with the Bible when it says not to bear false witness against our neighbor? Well, the Bible has some pretty straightforward, very straightforward statements about what will happen to liars. So what's going on here? Because if we read the rest of the story, let's continue that. Um, they gave the Pharaoh a law, and then verse 20 says what God did. So God dealt well with the midwives. So the midwives feared God, and they let the babies live. Pharaoh wants to know what's up. They give him a kind of, sort of, explanation. In verse 20, so God dealt well with the midwives, and the people multiplied and became very strong. The promise continues of more people. And God honored the midwives. He dealt well with them. Verse 21, and because the midwives feared God, don't miss that, because, it's very clear, it was because they feared God, He, God, gave them families. So God rewarded them with families of their own. Now, I don't know. I, I know. Nothing I've been able to find tells me whether or not the midwives typically did not have families of their own. But clearly, God rewarded them by giving them families. It's, it's straight up said there. And having a family was a, an incredibly important thing to people of that time. So they feared God and honored him, and God gave them families. Now, what about their, their mischief, shall we say, or their misleading the king. Well, do you think it would have been a greater good for them to have said, yeah, we didn't kill them. What are you going to do about it? Well, Pharaoh probably would have had them killed, and he would have taken other measures. So they simply led Pharaoh to believe something else was going on, and in so doing, they preserved the lives of many, and God's people flourished. It said that right there. God's people got stronger. So we clearly cannot understand what they did there as a lie, the way God talks about liars, for example, in the next to the last chapter of the book of Revelation, as being subject to judgment. They clearly 
we're not misleading their neighbor. And if you look at the Ten Commandments, it says there that the person should not bear false witness against their neighbor. That, in the context of all of that, seems to imply a court proceeding. So don't lie about your neighbor in a proceeding where you will get away with something or take something from your neighbor or whatever. But it doesn't say anywhere in the Bible that we should tell the truth if it betrays another commandment that God has given us. And the midwives clearly were honored by God because they preserved life instead of killing those babies. Now, in case you want to think about a New Testament example of that, I want to draw your attention to the book of Acts, chapter 5, verse 29, where the apostles said to the human authority there, we must obey God rather than any human authority. So whenever there's a conflict between what God says and what human authority says, guess who we're supposed to follow? Yep, you're right, God. Sometimes that puts us at odds with people who think they know better, but clearly God has a plan and we need to trust him. So Pharaoh's embarked on this attempt to crush God's people, the Israelites. He doesn't succeed by their forced labor. He tries to get the midwives to kill the baby boys and they refuse. And so plan A didn't work. Plan B, well, that didn't work either because they refused to do it. So he comes up with plan C. Chapter 1, verse 22. Then Pharaoh commanded all his people, Every son that is born to the Hebrews you shall throw into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. So now he's not keeping it a secret. If it was a secret before, if it was kind of on the sly before, it's not now. He's oppressed the people. Well, probably nobody would have objected to that because in another sense, that wasn't that unusual. Sometimes in lieu of taxation, the pharaohs, the kings, would require people to work for them for a month and not get paid. That was their tax, you might say. Well, when they had these ambitious building projects, they needed lots of people, and so that was one way to do it. And to put prisoners or people that they captured in war to work like that, to enslave people, was not that unusual. So when they treated the Israelites that way, that might not have caused the Egyptians alarm. Now, killing the babies, that might have. So he might have done that on the slide. We don't know that for sure. We do know it was communicated to the midwives. And we do know the midwives said, not so fast, not going to do that because they feared God. And we know God rewarded them for that. He gave them families of their own. And so we can take from that that there is a greater principle at work here than what some people think. That when God says this, we do this no matter what somebody else says. And there's no authority, don't miss this, there's no authority greater than God. And we, God's people, need to recognize that. I hear a whole lot of you saying amen. Thank you. I'm glad you agree with that. That is really true. And we don't have to be, now, some people, they, they want to fuss about this a little bit. We don't have to be obnoxious about that. Can we cooperate with the authorities? We do all the time, don't we? All the time, often in ways we'd prefer not to. 
But we don't make those moral choices. We recognize that they may be, and indeed are, overstepping their bounds, but we cooperate because we are not prone to violent objection. And we don't want to be. We don't think that's appropriate. We might push back in other ways, but we tend to cooperate rather than make issues where they aren't issues. But if someone came in to our households or into our churches, into our communities and said, you've got to kill all the babies that are born, all the baby boys that are born, we would object to that and we would not do it. Absolutely would not. So that's important for us to understand. We don't have to be people who don't cooperate, but we certainly have to recognize where faithfulness to God comes far before any expectation of any other authority. There's no question that's important. So they give instructions for all the baby boys to be thrown into the Nile. And that doesn't really work out either. So in chapter 2 of Exodus, we have the beginning of God moving to deliver his people. So let's read a little bit of that. This begins the story of a man named Moses. You've probably heard of him. Now a man from the house of Levi went and married a Levite woman. The woman conceived and bore a son, and when she saw that he was a fine baby, she hid him three months. And it occurs to me, does it occur to you, what mother hasn't thought their baby was fine? <laughs> I thought that was great the way that says that. Here's this great baby boy, and every mother that's ever had a baby, in fact, all babies are great, aren't they? They really are. When she saw that he was a fine baby, she hid him three months. Well, babies grow. They get noisy. They get active. And so she hid him fine for three months. Verse 3, when she could hide him no longer, she got a papyrus basket for him, plastered it with bitumen and pitch. She put the child in it and placed it among the reeds on the bank of the river. His sister stood at a distance to see what would happen to him. So here you go. So she has this baby boy. She's really pleased with him. She hides him for three months, realizes that she can't keep doing that, comes up with another plan, and she, in a sense, puts him in the river. Well, puts him in the river in a basket designed to float, in a basket to protect him, in the hopes that he will somehow be delivered from that fate of being thrown into the river. Well, that's a very wise woman. And, and by the way, uh, let's make sure we don't miss this. In the story that we're looking at, the story of the, of the Hebrews here and the preserving of their lives, have you noticed the strong role of women, the midwives, unwilling to do what Pharaoh said? They stood up for what God said. Here is Moses' mother, and the story talks about it. It was, it was her idea. And she prepares this, this basket. Uh, it's the same word used for ark in Noah's day. This ark of safety for him. And she puts him among the reeds in a protected place, among the reeds on the bank of the river. And her sister stands, or her, not her sister, Moses' sister stands and watches to see what would happen. So they're very, very wise, smart, strategic about this, setting this up for a good ending. And of course, it does end well. The daughter of Pharaoh, verse 5, came down to bathe at the river while her attendants walked beside the river. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her maid to bring it. 
When she opened it, she saw the child. He was crying, and she took pity on him. Uh, don't you think that's a well-timed cry on the part of Moses? Who doesn't have something go on inside them when they hear a baby cry, that they want to respond to comfort that baby? When she opened it, she saw the child. He was crying, and she took pity on him. This must be one of the Hebrew children, she said. Then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and get you a nurse from the Hebrew women to nurse the child for you? Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Yes. So the girl went and called the child's mother. Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this child and nurse it for me, and I will give you your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed it. When the child grew up, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and she became her son. She named him Moses because she said, I drew him out of the water. Now, that's just such a wonderful story, isn't it? So the, the sister of Moses is watching, and it takes a lot of courage for these people to do what they did. It took a lot of courage to, to preserve Moses' life for those three months. Can you imagine what they might have had to do to keep that boy hidden? It takes a lot of courage then to hatch another plan to say, we've got to find a way to save his life. And so they do. And they put that baby in that basket down in the river, just in a spot where it's likely that he'll be discovered because they wouldn't have come to the spot by happenstance. They would have known where the Egyptians come. So they come down to the river and they hear this baby crying, see this basket, and suddenly Pharaoh's daughter rescues Moses. Well, then out of the hidden place where she was, Moses' sister appears and says, Oh, you like this baby? Would you like me to find someone to take care of the baby for you until he's a little older? Well, of course. And notice that she, of course, goes to find the baby's mother, Moses' mother. And the daughter of Pharaoh says, I want you to take care of this baby for me, and I will pay you to do it. Now, that's really amazing the way God has worked that out, don't you think? That's just, just so remarkable. We have, to, we have to think that was great. Uh, but let's also make sure we notice that, that what they're doing here is illegal. It's violating the law. They didn't do what Pharaoh said. Pharaoh said the babies are supposed to be thrown into the river, the boy babies, and they didn't do it. So they broke the law. Were, were they wrong to do that? Well, much the same explanation as the midwives deceiving Pharaoh applies here. Of course, they weren't wrong. You're not supposed to kill people. Life is valuable. God says it's valuable. We need to preserve life, not kill people. And so while Moses' parents violated the law, and some people might say, well, how could they violate the law when they're supposed to be law-abiding citizens? When a human authority comes up against God, demands that we do something that's offensive to God, we cannot follow the human authority. You know, I guess part of the question is, when we have lawmakers in this country or in any country that act lawlessly, illegally, do we have enough faith to defy them? And when I say lawlessly or illegally, there is no law that's appropriate that violates God's law. God is God, after all. And do we have enough confidence in God, enough faith in Him, to defy 
civil authorities and say, you know, I answer to, to you when I can, but you have made it impossible for me, and so I cannot do that because I fear God more than I fear you. Hmm. That's a very good question, don't you think? Well, so Moses' mother raises Moses for three more months, likely. This is about the period of time that, that she would have done that before she takes him to Pharaoh's household. Now, Pharaoh's household is pretty large. People might say, well, how come they didn't recognize that this little boy didn't belong there? Well, he was probably... I said three or four months. It was likely more than that. It was likely three or four years. In those days, the baby would have been cared for for longer. So he would have been older by the time he got there. And and, and Egyptian royalty didn't take care of babies, so it wasn't surprising that they did that. But you might ask yourself the question, well, how did that new boy fit into Pharaoh's household? Well, keep in mind, Pharaoh's household was large. Pharaoh's household would have likely consisted of more than one wife, and in those days, kings had a harem. And so there would have been a lot of children around, and Pharaoh wouldn't have known all of them in all likelihood. So it's not really surprising that he could have fit into that household and learned and grown, benefited from the royal court, from being trained there, all of the things that would that would come to him because of being raised in Pharaoh's household. Now, it's also interesting that, that the name Moses came from the Pharaoh's daughter. That wasn't a name that someone else gave him. He became her son when she took him into the household, and she named him Moses because, she said, I drew him out of the water. Now, that's an interesting statement because that name sounds like, in Hebrew being drawn out of the water. So it's an Egyptian-connected name, but in Hebrew it has that sound, so there's kind of a double meaning to that. The, the Moses idea comes is related to other Hebrew names, which would have had to do with being born. But interestingly enough, as the Bible tells the story, the emphasis is on the way that word sounds in Hebrew, which would sound like the word for being drawn out. So Moses here is drawn out of the water and rescued. And as you know, God has a plan for this man's life. Now he's very young, three or four years old, goes into the Pharaoh's household. But we will pick up his story some more about what goes on. Now, clearly we've reviewed a couple of moral dilemmas. The the Hebrew midwives were really, really heroes, heroes of this story. No question about it. Moses' parents absolutely took courage to stand up for what was right. They took the risk. Their daughter cooperated with that. Moses' sister cooperated with that. And they refused to bow down to what was obviously against what God expected. And they were in the model of the the apostles who said, we must obey God rather than any human authority. Now, I think that we are losing in this country a sense of our enormous benefit when it comes to these kinds of conflicts between human authority, government authority, and God. Do you see God's hand in your life? 
We're going to see God's hand in the life of Moses as we go forward with this. But I want you to take a moment to think, are you living out what God has called you to do? Could you be God's choice for some key role in your church or your community? Have you been resisting what God has asked you to do? You see, God asked those Hebrew midwives to be faithful and to preserve the lives of those babies, and they did it. Same is true for Moses' parents, particularly for his mother and sister who played a key role in that. And he might be calling you. And if he's calling, I hope you will step up. For it's still true today, we must obey God rather than any human authority. May God give you grace to do just that. And I hope he'll give you grace to join us again next week. I'm Pastor Rick.